Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I'm really excited that you're here today. I think you have a lot of important information that you're going to be able to share with me and our audience. Can you please go ahead and introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? Sure. So uh, my name is John Zellner. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the U of M School of Public Health. And I'm also a faculty member in the Center for Social Epidemiology and Population Health, where we think a lot about health inequality. And in what areas does your research focus? So my research group works, you know, essentially entirely in infectious disease. Um, and we think a lot about the drivers of inequality in infectious disease outcomes. And so we look at this in a lot of different ways, sometimes using you know, the kinds of mathematical models that people may be um, now kind of used to seeing in, in the news and so forth. But we also look at a lot of real world data, both from the, the state health surveillance system and from other sources. And we look at things kind of in space and time. Um, so we do a lot of mapping and things like that. With the, the timing of when we have this great opportunity to talk with you being right when families are preparing to send their kids back to school, I'm very happy that we're going to be able to really focus on uh, this area a little bit today. So as an epidemiologist who has studied the COVID-19 virus and its impacts, you of course have you know so much to offer us today. And so as students across the state are heading back to in-person classes, how is this fall different from last fall in regards to what we know about the virus, the variant that we are currently facing, and the availability of vaccinations? Sure. So obviously things have shifted a lot, much of it in a, a very positive direction, but you know, obviously the emergence of things like the Delta variant have kind of put us back on our heels a little bit. Um, obviously, the biggest thing that's changed is that, you know, many or most, depending on the, the, the district you're in, of the adults who are in the classroom or in a school building are going to be vaccinated at this point, right? And so to me, that's kind of the primary thing we worry about is how does the virus kind of get into the building um, if you're thinking about school-based transmission? Um, certainly kids can transmit amongst themselves, but that in general, particularly among the younger kids who haven't been vaccinated yet or aren't able to be, is, is a lower risk thing than transmission from adults to children. So, you know, one thing to be hopeful about is that we hopefully have kind of plugged those gaps a little bit through vaccination. But I think the, the thing that kind of remains the same is that the same rules apply. Transmission still can happen in the schools, right? It's important to kind of follow through with the sorts of mitigation things that we've been doing um, in the past, particularly among unvaccinated groups of kids. And we shouldn't be surprised and we shouldn't necessarily even be too upset if we see outbreaks in schools, right? It's a question of the volume of these and the intensity of them and the number, number of cases in each one. Um, but just the very fact of outbreaks occurring, unfortunately, is just going to be a fact of life um, for the foreseeable future. 
You were recently quoted in a piece on today.com that focused on mitigation efforts for this school year. And so just based on that response about vaccinations and knowing that those who are under 12 are unable to get vaccinated at this time, what are the most effective measures to have in place to reduce the spread of COVID-19? So I think the single most effective thing is vaccination for staff and, and teachers and so forth, right? So that I think is kind of number one with a bullet. And then after that, it's things like potting kids within classrooms. So, you know, my daughter is four years old. She's been in um, preschool the entire time pretty much throughout the pandemic. And we've been lucky to not have any transmission in her classroom. There have been a case or two sort of detected, but none of that resulted in transmission in the classroom. And, you know, the idea of like social distancing among a group of three and four-year-olds is it's just not a thing, right? Like they, they like to get in each other's faces and that's just kind of part of being a little kid. And they wear masks, but again, I think they're, they're wearing masks is, is a little bit spotty um, to, to be kind. And ultimately, I think the thing that makes the biggest difference is kind of walling the groups of kids off from each other, you know, across classrooms in a way that makes it less likely that if there is a kid who's infectious, they're going to be exposed to, you know, 30, 40, 50 kids. Instead, they're really kind of focused on that group of, you know, eight, nine, 10 kids in their class. And I think probably that's the most important thing we should be focusing on in terms of mitigation schools up until the point when younger children can be vaccinated. I think, you know, as far as masking goes, it's become this like very hot button thing. You know, you have a lot of sort of social conflict about it. But ultimately, to me, masks are a kind of why not sort of thing, particularly for children. I think for adults, it's because it works. We know that definitively. There's no questions about it. For small kids, I think there's, I don't see enough downside to think that we should just sort of not take this, this very useful thing that's available to us. And we may never know whether that was a huge difference maker, but I just see no reason not to do it personally. And in that article, the Today article, you advise that if schools can effectively proceed with mitigation efforts, it can be predicted that this, you know, fall semester should be, could be pretty calm. Can you expand on how these efforts can positively impact the entire in-person school year? I mean, I think, you know, what everybody's looking for is a degree of predictability, right? Is a degree of, uh, of feeling like, you know, you're going to send your kids to school and they're going to stay in school and the school's not going to close, you know, either for the rest of the term or for weeks at a time. And so I think, you know, making that happen really necessitates keeping the virus out of the building to the extent possible. And so, again, I mean, I sort of come back to the importance of, you know, vaccination for adults, vaccination for older children, you know, essentially vaccination for anybody who can get it as a means of, of preventing things from happening within the building. And then that's the first line of defense. And then everything past that is really just trying to kind of slow things down should something get in, right? Should it occur? So to me, it's like, those are kind of the big things, like keep it out of the building, you know, keep it from, from being introduced into a classroom. And then if it is introduced into a classroom, kind of what are the safeguards in place to A, keep that from moving from person to person. So that's obviously masking some degree of distancing potentially, 
uh, among older kids, although I, I tend to have a kind of dim view of the reality of social distancing among, um, you know, younger children in general, or even slightly older children. And then beyond that, you know, maintaining some sense of boundaries between classrooms that makes it so that, you know, the, the reach of a given infection is relatively short. Um, right. Nothing's perfect. And I think you don't want to create a totally like stilted and artificial environment. But at least from my own personal experience as a parent of a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, the benefits of having those things in place went beyond just the fact that they were protective, is that they gave people a sense of security that I think was rooted in something real, right? It's not, it, you have a sense that these measures are working and they're going to be, you know, protective of your kids. Are there any ways that parents and guardians can help prepare their children as they head back to the classrooms, whether it's um, prevention strategies or just conversations that they could have to really help them um, understand these mitigation efforts? I mean, I guess I can only kind of speak to that from my own personal experience with my kids. And what I found with both of them is they've you know, kind of taken to these things relatively easily. And part of that, I think, unfortunately, is just the duration of this experience. You know, my daughter was two when this began, and now she's four. My son was five and in kindergarten, and now he's starting second grade. And so, you know, they've been wearing masks to basically anything where there's other people for quite a while. And my son at this point is just like happy to just put it on and kind of do his business. So I think part of it is just that it's been normalized for them. And, and that's, that's on the one hand, that's kind of sad, but on the other hand, it's like, they're, you know, they're kind of realists about it. I think the other thing is they, they get a lot more than at least in, in my own personal experience than we might give them credit for, right? They can think about these risks and they can do it without being totally hysterical about it as well, right? So it's like, this is a risky situation or in relative terms. And so we're doing this to protect everybody. So obviously it's like everybody's kid is different. Every, you know, everybody has different ways of thinking and dealing with these things. But for us, like being as forthright as we can, you know, kind of meeting them with their, where they're at kind of cognitively and emotionally um, has worked pretty well. I mean, it certainly isn't, hasn't been perfect. We've had a lot of sort of frustration and tears about why can't I do X, Y, or Z um, kind of thing, or, you know, Zoom-based after-school activities that do not work and so forth. But you know, I think kids at this point mostly pretty much get it probably better than a lot of adults. Thank you. I was really interested in having your perspective, both as an epidemiologist and an expert in this area, and also sure. as a parent as to how, how that has been going. I want to pivot just a bit because you've done quite a bit of research on social inequities and the populations that are most vulnerable to the pandemic. So as students return to the classroom, They'll be coming in having lived through the same pandemic, but they haven't necessarily experienced it the same way. Can you briefly explain how different households have had varying experiences throughout the pandemic and who has been negatively impacted the most? So, you know, I would say there's not a single answer to the question, which is it's a very good question. But again, because this whole thing has dragged on for so long, I think we kind of, you can almost kind of break it into these different phases, right? Like there's that early acute phase, particularly if we're thinking like March to June or July of, of 2020, um, where we were seeing just, you know, 
pretty high caseloads, enormous inequities where you had sort of families of essential workers and so forth who were, you know, disproportionately have lower socioeconomic status, disproportionately people of color, particularly in Michigan, um, who were, you know, experiencing the brunt of the risk. Um, and that was a period in which we saw just enormous amounts of death among older people in particular. Then as you move into the summer, we get into this kind of weird, again, summer of last year, into this weird kind of calm period where case rates are going down, but they're, they're not going down as fast as they should. And people were kind of rushing back out into the world and rates were going up. And, and, and on some level, it looked like the inequality and infection was going down. But if you kind of look at the, the numbers, what you actually see is that folks who were at lower risk in that first phase were at greater risk in that second phase. And, and a lot of that probably had to do with a kind of socioeconomic and racialized rejection of things like masking, social distancing over that particular summer. And then, you know, as we went into the fall of last year and into the winter of 2021, we saw, you know, kind of an equalization in terms of the risks that people were seeing, you know, if you broke it down crudely by race and ethnicity, which isn't the best way of doing it, except it's the best data that we typically have on the cases. So on the one hand, you could say, well, things have kind of stabilized in that domain. Um, but one thing I tried to kind of emphasize is that the damage is already done, right? The people who died in March, April, June, July of 2020, you know, you're not going to be able to bring those people back. Um, and the fact that they died early on kind of reflects the sort of structural inequities that have, you know, made this pandemic what it is. So just because we see things getting better over the course of this whole event in terms of inequality doesn't mean that we've solved any problems, right? Like, I think the, the right thought experiment isn't, is one group, you know, more likely to get sick and die today than another group you know, as compared to March of 2020, it's if we re-ran this pandemic, which of course nobody wants to do, again in five years, would we see a dramatically different pattern, right? And absent some large set of structural changes, I don't think we would, right? I think we would see exactly the same kinds of things playing out because it was really kind of more by design than by accident, right? We have a, you know, a healthcare and economic system that's set up to exploit people um, by socioeconomic status and race. And so you shouldn't be surprised when you see those patterns. So I think, you know, people are coming back into schools and into workplaces, carrying all of these experiences, right? Carrying the cumulative burden of that. And obviously it's going to be very variable across individuals. And, and some of that will follow the kinds of cleavages of, you know, class, income and race that we're used to thinking and talking about. But it's also a very individualized experience. Some of it is just you know, are you the family member of somebody who works in healthcare? Are you the family member of somebody who works in a setting like, unlike me, where you can't work from home for, for years on end, it would appear, um, right? So all of those things make a huge difference. Um, and so I think it's, it's very heterogeneous, even though ultimately, like, you know, we can probably see these big contours in terms of the types of inequalities we always see um, in, in health outcomes in the U.S. Thank you so much for diving into that. So I like to ask everyone who comes on Michigan Minds this question as we get to the end of our interview. And a lot of times it's the one that it's most difficult. Um, what is something that you hope everyone listening takes away from this conversation? One of your real big key takeaways? I mean, to me, 
what I think is a, a very important thing to remember is that things like a pandemic, an epidemic, whatever, often don't have a really defined endpoint, right? And I think we have a kind of, just as people, a kind of emotional predisposition to kind of wanting to say something is done and move on with it. Um, and we certainly saw that over the summer. And I think in the US, there's also kind of a cultural and social sort of predisposition to that, right? To say like, we're done, like we're, we're moving on, we're going back to the beach, we're going to the bars um, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, and that's how I think we keep finding ourselves in these kind of weird moments where we're like, we thought it was almost done and then it wasn't done. And, and then we're so mad about that. And we pick another group or set of people to be mad at for not getting vaccinated, not wearing masks or for being vaccinated and wearing masks or what have you. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, it's like this whole experience points out everybody's kind of dependence on each other, right? At every possible level. Um, and, and so, I mean, I think people have to understand that, like, this is not a thing that's going to like end in, in one day. And we need to adopt a framework that where we think about risk in a more kind of continuous way, where it's not just about like, I have zero risk, ergo, I don't need to be vaccinated or, you know, I am vaccinated now, I have no risk, right? And that those should be our expectations. Like we should expect that this will go up and down and kind of, you know, get worse and get better before it peters out. And that's a positive thing as much as a negative thing, right? You know, we're going through this surge, it's very hard for people to expect that there'll be something positive on the other side of it. But ultimately the cases will continue to go down, the deaths will continue to go down, more people will get vaccinated, more age groups will be able to get vaccinated. And ultimately the arrow's pointing in the right direction, even if it's not going as fast or as straight as we might want it to. Um, so I would kind of try and encourage people to keep their folks a little bit more on the horizon, um, particularly as we go into a fall that's gonna bring, you know, surprises um, and, and, and so forth. I mean, I think another thing, if, if we're talking about what people should sort of take away, um, and I think this is, something that people who are kind of passed off or pass themselves off as experts are sort of culpable for is that this is an unpredictable thing, right? And it's unpredictable because it involves people and the messiness of their, their kind of social relations and their emotions and all the things that kind of make us who we are. And that's all interacting with the biology of this pathogen, right? So it's interacting with the fact that you know, viruses develop novel variants that may or may not be more transmissible, and that creates a whole set of problems. But ultimately, what makes this thing hard to predict is that there's this human substrate to it um, that's kind of evolving or, and recalibrating its expectations. And anybody who claims to predict the future with any degree of confidence is like lying to themselves or lying to you. Right. Um, the purpose of these transmission models that people use is shouldn't be necessarily to give you a, a, a crystal ball forecast for what's going on um, in the next week, month, whatever, but more to say, here's the range of possibilities. And often we focus on the, the mean or median and we miss the fact that it could go in a lot of different directions. And, and that's something I think we need to be a little more savvy in terms of the way we think about risk and and that comes both from the side of consuming it but also from communicating it and kind of producing these types of models. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to add to this conversation that we didn't cover? I think one thing which I think is just really important to remember 
is that when we think about sort of inequities and the, the general unfairness of the pandemic, you know, from, from March of 2020 to today, even when the case rates go down, even when, you know, maybe we can sort of really dial back um, all the precautions that we, we've been using for so long, the inequities are going to stick with us, right? And some of those are, you know, things like differences in the impact of missed schooling on, on kids um, and, and differences in lost wages and the impact of those lost wages on, on parents and families, lost housing. Um, and some of those are going to be more medical in the sense that we don't really know what the long, long-term effects of COVID infections are. Um, so, you know, to me, this is something that's going to be playing out in one form or another over the course of, you know, decades. Um, and, you know, we're not going to really have a full accounting of it, um, you know, until 20, 30, 40 years from now. Um, but I think, unfortunately, as we go forward, we're going to see, again, that like inequity replicates inequity, right? So the inequality you see in the infections and deaths early on is going to show up in the inequality that we see in the chronic conditions um, and also in the treatment of these long-term chronic conditions by race and ethnicity and income and geography and all those usual things. Dr. Zellner, thank you so much for your time. You've provided so much insight and so many things for everyone to think about and take with them. I sincerely appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.